This program is made possible by members and donors to the show, and supporting the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We are in particular need of new members right now, so if you have a few bucks a month available to help us produce the show, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the racist attacks by Trump and his supporters against the squad, and how those attacks are in line with a long tradition of delegitimizing and silencing the perspectives of non-whites in America. Before we get started, though, here's just a few thoughts to take with you. You're going to hear reference, not right away, toward the end of the show, to Henry Wallace's article on fascism in America. And if you have not heard of Henry Wallace, I don't blame you. He was one of FDR's vice presidents, and he was quite progressive for his time. And he wrote an article, it was sort of an op-ed in the New York Times, and he was talking about the dangers of how fascism could come to America. Obviously, he was living through a time of fascism in Europe, and so he was trying to warn people about what fascism may look like when it comes here, because it wouldn't look the same, was his point. It would come wrapped in the American flag. It would come with you know Christianity as as its uh, you know call to action. And the point he argued was that it was. Uh, always going to be about dividing people in order to continue to enrich the already wealthy. And uh, and one of the major elements of this would be putting corporate interests in charge of the aspects of the government directed with overseeing corporations, uh, regulating them, and so on. So I actually, I first came across this article in the early 2000s, pre-Best of the Left, by a few years, probably. And uh, th- this was actually the first topic that I ever called into a political talk show to talk about. Actually, this might be the only time I've called in to a political talk show uh, to talk about something. And there was a discussion happening on the Young Turks. They're still around. You may have heard of them, but uh, at the time... I think they're on satellite radio, and that, that's where I was listening to them. And they were having a conversation, not really a debate, just a, a discussing the sort of debate happening generally at the time about whether or not the George W. Bush administration was leading us towards fascism or whether we should call what they were doing fascism at the time, which sounds frankly quaint by today's standards. But the point was that Bush... I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard about it under Trump. If you if you missed it the first time around, putting corporate lobbyists in charge of regulating the corporations that they had just come from, that was not a Trump invention. That was a George W. Bush tactic, and I don't even know if he invented it. It probably goes back further than him, but you know that's that's when I became conscious of it. And so uh, the Young Turks were talking about whether or not. We should call the Bush administration fascist. They were saying, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. We're, we're nowhere near fascism. This is not what fascism looks like. And ha- me, having heard of this Henry Wallace article, took the position that, no, 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 sure, we don't have brown shirts marching in the streets fascism. We have corporate fascism. And we should use that word to talk about this phenomenon because it's really dangerous 
to put corporations in charge of regulating themselves. So I called in to the Young Turks to argue this point. And, you know, in, in the end, I think it was a matter of semantics, basically. They, they were certainly in favor of arguing against the practice of putting corporations in charge of regulating themselves. So whether or not you call that fashion is just sort of a, a, a matter of semantics. And, you know, is it worth it to bring all of the extra baggage that the term fascism has to describe this concept of corporate fascism? In retrospect, I probably agree with their perspective rather than mine now. But the other thing it brings to mind is uh, the trouble of laying the groundwork. And that reminds me of another thing, one of my favorite quotes from that same era, early 2000s, from Sandra Day O'Connor, former Supreme Court justice who had retired. And she gave a talk. This was reported on by an NPR reporter. And she was describing how the judiciary was under attack by the right wing. And so just a quick quote from the Guardian newspaper from the time says she pointed to autocracies in the developing world and former communist countries as lessons on where interference with the judiciary might lead. Quoting Sandra Day O'Connor, it takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings, unquote. So I bring this up now as a preamble to today's episode in which we're going to hear a lot about the terrible things that Trump is doing and saying and how it's dictatorial and, and fascist and he's leaning very much in, in that direction. And I just think it's appropriate to always remind everyone that this did not come out of nowhere. Groundwork was laid in the past. We are where we are today because of where we have come from and because of what we have allowed to happen in the past. The point being, should we dodge this particular bullet and get beyond Trump and get to the point where we feel like things are moving in a much more positive direction, much more in favor of democracy, for instance, instead of authoritarianism? We have to remember this lesson that, as Sandra Day O'Connor said, it takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship. So we can't allow for anything to be done that could be seen as a step in that direction. We have to always guard against and avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. And one last note, stick around at the end of the show for further discussion about Medicare for All, how to talk about it, further discussion about drug choice under our current system and the theoretical Medicare for All system and so forth. So you're going to want to hear that. First, though, of course, on to the show. Clips today come from Backtalk, The Real News, Sojourner Truth, and On the Media. So Trump, in three tweets, essentially targeted um, who he called, quote, progressive Democrat congresswomen. Um, he went on to say that these congresswomen had no right to criticize how the U.S. government and his, and his administration uh, should be doing things because he accused them of um, 
originally coming from the types of countries that he'd, you know, referred to as shithole countries. So in the tweets, he went as far as to say, quote, why don't you go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came, end quote. Yes, the old racist standby of go back to where you came from. Um, so his tweets were targeted at Ayanna Presley, um, Il- Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib. So four women of color freshman congress members um so three of whom who were actually born in the u.s uh ilhan omar had immigrated to the u.s when she was a kid um so it's unsurprising that trump would use this like very racist rhetoric to talk about um strong women of color who are challenging him and his administration and all the horrific things that they're doing um but what was surprising was that some of the legacy media outlets actually labeled his tweets as racist. Um, like for far too long, mainstream news organizations have often framed racist speech as being, you know, like quote, racially, racially charged or like racially motivated or racially tinged um, when you could just have called it racist and it would have been completely accurate. Um, I was actually driving around when I heard about this and I was like listening to NPR um, when they had a new segment about the tweets and I was I, I was surprised like my ears perked up uh, when I heard the host say that they were racist tweets. Um, so we wanted to talk today about what it mean for uh, mainstream media outlets to begin to call racist shit racist, especially when they're coming from Trump. The fallout from these racist tweets has been super ongoing. Trump um, has walked them back, pushed them back forward. And of course, like... M- so many members of the Republican Party are wringing their hands over whether or not they will actually label these statements racist. In this, like, really, like, surprising turn of events, the House actually held a vote to condemn the racist statements. 235 Democrats uh, voted to condemn the statements and four, well, I mean, on one hand, I can't believe four Republicans voted, but also only four Republicans voted to support the measure, which, um, the content of the censure says that they uh, strongly condemn President Donald Trump's racist comments that have legitimized an increased fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color. So in this extraordinary rebuke, um, 235 Democrats and four Republicans actually, um, like as a matter of law, declared what he said racist. Yeah, it's I, I was often thinking about um, what was sort of the impetus, like why this specific moment um, and it harkened back to like um, NPR's decision to label it racist. So I listened to um, one of NPR's podcasts uh, about like their editorial decision to do this essentially. And they have like a practice practices or practices and standards and practices guy that's a standards and practices guy who helps them sort of like um to uphold like their style sheet essentially because the thing about um media organizations is that um they all have a style guy that they go by about how they will refer to thing how they will spell things um like for example at bitch media like um we purposefully do not hyphenate um a phrase like asian american or um Mm -hmm. chicano american that's like two standalone phrases where the first letter is capital so that's just the thing that 
that like I know to do. But some uh, media organizations do continue to hyphen it, and it could be like a political thing. Like at Bitch Media, we also um we also capitalize black when we're talking about a person, like a black woman or uh, a black organization, because it's like a political thing to make it into a statement that like we are emphasizing the power of like this identity. Um, so for NPR, they had you know um a style guide or. Or like guidelines to also talk about like when to call something racist or not. And um, what was interesting was that like their person in charge of the uh, practices, standards and practices um, had mentioned that like this is also being enforced by human beings and human beings are like not infallible. Um, and so their decisions, you know, that they make about whether or not to call something racist um, is sometimes a, a case by case thing. And for this case in particular, um, uh, they said that the reason why it felt accurate to say racist is because it was being targeted at these specific women um, versus, you know, when um, Trump allegedly said shithole countries because it was it was um, being reported as these people who were in a room with him and they were talking about something in particular. And um, and Trump had mentioned, you know, countries like Haiti where it was like a shithole country as compared to like, um, I think it was like Norway. So in that case, like, I guess because it wasn't like recorded, um, NPR was like, well, we can't blatantly call it racist. We can say it's like, you know, racially charged or, um, you know, had racial tinge or something because I think they didn't have it on record. But because, uh, th- there's different factors that like, that it was tweeted from Trump's account directly and that he targeted specific people and he targeted them with this like very old standby uh, racist um, trope of like, go back to where you came from. And then they felt comfortable calling it racist. And, um, and I think this is something that's just like, I mean, it's, it's despicable that it's finally happening that we're doing this. Um, and uh, I think it goes to show because like, in March 2019, the AP style guide, this Associated Press style guide, um, had released a statement that, like, quote, do not use racially charged or similar terms as euphemisms for racist or racism when the latter terms are truly applicable. Um, I wonder if, like, you know, there was like a term because people often um, will rely on the AP style guide. You know, some newsrooms will just say, mm-hmm. like, our style guide is this, but um, we also adhere closely to the AP style guide or like the Ch- Chicago manual style guide. So I think that like maybe there's like a turn, thankfully, um, in journalism or in writing in general about culture where like if it's accurate to label something racist, just label it racist. I think that we're seeing the rise of uh, the next elections like version of lock her up which is i think send her back or what i think it might turn into something like send them back is like a really convenient really succinct way for trump's supporters to um pretend like they care about like the rule of law while also sort of like in a dog whistle way expressing deep misogyny and deep racism. Um, The New York Times, he's getting in front of audiences and he's saying this stuff. You know, the there was a cheer that happened at one of his rallies where uh, 
people started chanting, send her back. And Trump says that he cut it off right away. But actually, he let the chant build for 13 seconds before he said anything about it. Um, so Trump is still showing up in front of audiences and saying this just like he did uh, in 2016. But the New York Times uh, did a report from a rally in Tennessee uh, this week. And they were asking people, like, do you see Trump's comments as racist? And I thought so one uh, white man, since they identified him, I think said something really telling, which was like, no, he's not targeting these women. It just so happens that they're the ones who said it. And we're we want to tell them, quit your bitching. And I was like, oh, right. <laughs> like, of course, you would use like misogynist language, like right in the middle of that. You know, it's it's like so obviously giving cover to misogyny and, of course, also racism. We're about first to watch some clips from two press conferences that were held yesterday, one by Donald Trump and the other by the four congressional representatives that he attacked. These are people that hate our country. This is a disruptive distraction from the issues of care, concern and consequence to the American people. This is a president who has said, grab women by the pussy. When I hear the anti-Semitic language they use, when I hear the hatred they have for Israel and the love they have for enemies like Al-Qaeda. He's launching a blatantly racist attack on four duly elected members of the United States of House of Representatives, all of whom are women of color. I am not surprised when, a, when the president says that four sitting members of Congress should, quote, go back to their own country when he has authorized raids without warrants on thousands of families across this country. This is a president who's called black, black athletes sons of bitches. We know this is who he is. And we know that he and his administration are constantly engaged in actions that harm residents and American people in our country. They hate our country. They hate it, I think, with a passion. Now, it's possible I'm wrong. The voter will decide. I encourage the American people and all of us in this room and beyond to not take the bait. What we just saw was Donald Trump and then, of course, our four congressional representatives, Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, responding to him, coming out swinging. And if you add this to what we just saw here in the last couple of days, to the internal struggle within the Democrats, the push on right-wing media like Fox from people like Senator Lindsey Graham and others and their hosts, the use of racist language, the threats of deportation of elected officials along with undocumented immigrants from Trump, adding to his years of racist rhetoric and his most recent attacks calling for the citizenship question on the census, hosting white nationalists at the White House for a social media strategy meeting and and changing the asylum laws, which he just did, he appeals to the worst instincts and fears of Americans about their jobs, about their future, about their way of life. Some have posited that we are moving toward a version of 21st century fascism in our own country. Is that being alarmist? Too rhetorical? Is there a reality there? What does that mean? Well, I don't know. Many of us don't know where it's all going, but that's what we're going to explore with our guest, Dr. Henry Giroux, who is McMaster University Professor for Scholarship in the Public Interest and the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy, author of America's Addiction to Terrorism, America, America at War with Itself, and his most recent book, 
which is the terror of the unforeseen. And Henry, welcome back. Good to have you with us. It's good to be back, Mark. So given all the books you've written, I think you're one of the perfect people to kind of jump into this. Um, let, let me throw another piece up before we start. Uh, and this is from Donald Trump uh, as part of his press conference. Uh, and let's just watch. Does it concern you that many people saw that tweet as racist and that uh, white nationalist groups are finding common cause with you on that point? It doesn't concern me because many people agree with me. And all I'm saying, they want to leave, they can leave. Now, it doesn't say leave forever. It says leave if you want. But what it says, what and what that, John, what that says is, if they're not happy with the United States, if they're doing nothing but criticizing us all the time, you see these people walking down criticizing the United States, then you know what? I will tell you that uh, I do. I do not believe... This is good for the Democrat Party. Certainly, it's not the party that I've known over the years. So, Henry, for me, when he talks about the, in the very beginning of, of, of what he wrote, he doesn't care who supports him. He doesn't care about the white nationalists, that they can leave the country they need to. Just get out of the United States. Um, I mean, this, I can't, I mean, any other president who would have said this would have been kind of pushed out of office, left out of office, attacked vehemently. But here we're watching this man do this, and it's been taken very seriously by those who support him, and he's taking it very seriously as he says it. Your thoughts? Well, I, well my, my, my thought is that it's really important to sort of bring together a range of things that Trump is doing, much of which is in, which is in that two-and-a-half-minute clip that you played. I mean, he's, he's exhibiting a toxic masculinity, He's exhibiting uh, an appeal to ultra-nationalism. He's talking about support for white nationalism. He's, in a sense, exhibiting a notion of racism coupled with a notion of patriarchy that then suggests that any form of dissent is comparable to treason and that people should leave the country. I mean, you know, you add this all up, and it's right. we've seen this before. This, this is right out of a fascist playbook. I mean, he's a guy who really believes in performance. He's a guy who believes that what he says can be justified simply if, because people might support him. It has nothing to do with questions of ethics, social responsibility, or common decency. He trades in viciousness and cruelty. What you're seeing here are all the elements of what I call a war culture. And that is a culture that's become highly militarized by virtue of both his language and his politics. And at the heart of that culture, is the discourse of racial cleansing and social cleansing and what I call a logic of disposability. There are people now in the United States, if they're non-white, if they're undocumented immigrants, if they're people that Trump doesn't particularly like because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity, then they don't belong in the United States. I mean, this is a very dangerous discourse. But what's even more dangerous is the fact that you have these Vichy Republicans who are supporting him and you have members of the Democratic Party who can't even rise to the occasion of using a word that we should be using. And the word is white supremacy. That's what this is about. It's about coupling the misery and the anxiety and the anger that many people feel in the United States and diverting it into blaming others, which is all part of a larger discourse of disposability and one that in base basically is about militarizing the society, invoking a war culture, and, uh, and, and basically getting rid of people who don't belong here. This is the discourse of state terrorism. Let's be honest. This is not just simply harmless. You couple that language with the fear that it produces and the policy it creates, 
and the absolute uh, accomplices who support him in the, in the Congress are shameful human beings. The Republican Party is shameful in terms of where it's going. It's a party of extremists. Couple that with the Democrats who don't have the courage to name Trump for what he is, are basically a neo-fascist. And all of a sudden, uh, we, we find ourselves in a, at a point in history where it's hard to believe that we've arrived here, given the history that we've experienced in the 1930s and the 1940s. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, the rhetoric especially here. I mean, A, people are loath to use the word fascism because it's loaded with, the, the historical issue is loaded with fascism, using the word, and, and people always kind of, except for some folks, some folks, the people kind of are, are, are loath to use that, thinking it's going to turn people off, it's not real, you can't use that word, and B, white supremacy, which is deep and real, um, people are worried about winning this next election. And I think that what I said in there earlier in the opening about the internal squabbles within the Democrats uh, added to that, I mean, and, and, and his rhetoric kind of do add fuel to the fire of fear as to what this could lead and, and, and how we describe it is important. So talk a bit about you, the use of the word fascist here for most people. Well, I, I, I think, look, we have a whole range of historians from Hannah Haran to uh, Sheldon Wolin and others who argue that, you know, fascism isn't just interred in the past. Fascism reproduces itself in different forms in different ways under different historical contexts. And I think if you look at everything from this pathological uh, nationalism to the racial, the racial, the question of racial cleansing to the militarization to the uh, uh, celebration of emotion over, over, over reason to the suppression of dissent, the calling of the press, the enemies of the American people, the dissident press. I mean, all of these elements add up this contempt for weakness that he seems to suggest this toxic masculinity, this incredible patriarchy that seems unbridled in, in terms of how he, how he exercises it. These are all elements that we've seen before. And the question is, how are they emerging in a different form in the United States in a way that suggests something about what we should learn from history? Simply because we don't have concentration camps of the exact nature that we had in the 1930s and 40s doesn't mean that fascist politics is simply a relic of the past. As Jason Stanley and a whole range of other people have argued, Chris Hedges has argued, uh, we're in a very dangerous moment. And that moment has very eerie echoes of the past. And where that past suggests we're going is to massive degrees of state violence, massive degrees of cruelty, massive degrees of inequality, and massive degrees of, 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 of basically writing people out of descriptive citizenship, writing a whole range of people out of the script of what it means to have a voice, to have to be to have a voice in order to exercise some sort of control over the conditions of their own lives. Very dangerous moment. So and I have no I have no apologies whatsoever for using the word fascist politics. And I think that people who are afraid to do that become complicit with the very politics they condemn. Because if you can't learn from history then it seems to me that you end up in the dark. Today's episode is sponsored by Credo, the mobile phone company that asks, do you stand for women's rights and for the environment? Of course you do. And Credo Mobile is the phone company that stands with you. Credo is the only phone company in America that supports the same causes you do by donating $150,000 every month to groups like Rainforest Action Network, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and many more. While other phone companies spend millions to push through mega mergers and fund right-wing politicians, you can make the choice to switch to the mobile phone company that fights for what you believe in. 
Switch to Credo Mobile now, and as a reward, you'll get 12 pints of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. That's a pint a month for 12 months. You'll also get coverage on the nation's largest, most reliable network, along with low rates and a complete selection of smartphones, including the latest models from the top brands. So make the switch today. Go to credo.com slash best, or enter the offer code best at checkout. That's C-R-E-D-O dot com slash best. Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, having you weigh in on this because it's uh, talk about chickens coming home to roost. I mean, (laughs) uh, a case you have made for a very, very long time about uh, the fact that we have to take very, very seriously the depth of racist sentiment in the United States. Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, I think this whole controversy exposes and reveals this fundamental failure amongst virtually every ideological sector to understand U.S. history. Uh, That is to say, the country was founded uh, by slave owners, and oftentimes we tend to overemphasize the abolitionist elements amongst the Euro-American population, such as John Brown, even though they represented a distinct minority, and we totally ignore what might have been the dominant faction, which was the white man's country faction, which is to say no Negroes allowed, be they slave or free. If you look at the history of Oregon, for example, coming into the Union right before the U.S. Civil War, they basically barred black people from coming there, and that only changed well into the 20th century, which is why Portland, even today, has one of the smallest black populations of any major U.S. city. And Mr. Trump is a lineal descendant of that white man's country faction, He can criticize the United States. In his inauguration address, he talked about carnage and has been demonizing the country he purports to represent ever since. But those who are not defined as white are not allowed to criticize because we're not deemed to be U.S. nationals. This white man's country faction can also be detected in terms of this maniacal effort to maintain white spaces. Uh, For example, expelling black people from Starbucks, all of these racist videos about calling cops on black people for wandering into white spaces. When when Joe Biden is accused of leading the charge against busing, he was basically trying to maintain white spaces in terms of public schools. And I think that we really need to come to grips with the real history of this country as opposed to the romanticism and the illusions. And I think the beginning would be to totally deep six this idea that we often hear, even from progressive people, that the nation should live up to its founding ideals, as if the founding ideals were not genocide against Native Americans, mass enslavement of Africans, and this nonsensical idea that when there is something that's negative, somehow that's not congruent with founding ideals. That's inconsistent with founding ideals. I mean, this is the loonious idea since Looney Tunes. And I think if we're not careful, what we're going to come to is that the slogan of send her back is going to morph into the slogan of send them back them meaning black people certain immigrants certain members of religious minorities etc We know where it started, 
Those tweets last Sunday from America's president aimed at four Democratic congresswomen, all American citizens, all women of color, all impolitic in their impatience for change. So here's the tweet. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. And we know where it went. On Wednesday, Trump watched as his audience at a rally chanted, Send her back, about Minnesota Rep. Ilhan Omar, who responded Thursday by calling Trump a fascist. The GOP scrambled all week to excuse and explain. On CNN, host Chris Cuomo asked the Kansas Republican Senate candidate and Trump ally Chris Kobach, what if the president just came out and said, I am a racist? Would you still support him as president? Um, You have to think about it? You have to think about whether or not you would support a racist? Really? I'd have to know who was running against him. A racist? (laughs) While the press pursued the question of whether the president's comments would matter to his base, Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of American University's Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center, pursued another question in The Atlantic. Am I an American? In 1787, the year the Constitution was drafted, Thomas Jefferson published in English his most famous and influential book, The Notes of the State of Virginia. There was a chapter called Laws, and one of the laws he proposed was the law of colonization, that enslaved blacks should be freed, civilized, and ultimately sent back to Africa because the idea of a free black person for him in this country spelled Armageddon. Because? Because I guess he could not conceive of us creating anti-racist policies of, of equal opportunity and attacks and ideas back and forth between whites and blacks would ultimately lead to this race war. For him, the solution was, let's just get rid of the black people who, of course, we brought against their will and let's get rid of them against their will. And the repatriation that was proposed wasn't back to the place of the family's origin. When Black people are told, go back to Africa, most Black people will be like, exactly where would I go? I mean, I've traveled to West Africa, I've traveled to Ghana, and I don't feel as if I'm home. West Africans don't see me as one of them, just as Americans don't see me as one of them. And that's why I talked in that piece about This sort of envy, African-Americans on on some level have long been sort of searching for a nationality because we have not been made to feel as if we are American. And there's nowhere else in the world that, of course, we could consider home. And a certain segment of African-Americans have said, we are American. And because we're an American, we deserve to be free. We deserve equal rights. While another segment of African-Americans have said, we are not Americans, because if we were American, we would have freedom. We would have equal rights. Where do you fall? Both ring true to me. This go-back-where-you-came-from trope. You say it was right there in Jefferson's book, later the American Colonization Society in 1816. 
the American Colonization Society was founded in, in Washington, D.C., and a who's who of American power came to witness its founding. The idea that the way to solve this Negro problem was to get rid of Black people, that was widespread. And this organization would become the most powerful race relations organization of the 19th century before the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, even during the Civil War, was urging African Americans to return to Africa. You mentioned Lincoln. He said that colonization had to happen because the black race could never, quote, be placed on an equality with the white race. And he was swiftly corrected by the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. That really got to me. He said back in 1862, it is not their color, but their being free that makes their presence here intolerable. And that's what caused me to ask, am I only an American when I act like a slave? Because what we're really speaking about here in the events of the last week is not just for congresswomen of color. These are people who are demanding an equal seat at the table. But when we have been willing to submit to white power, when we have looked away from racial inequality and racist policies, people don't tell us to go back to Africa. We have a quote from Kellyanne Conway. Forget these four. They represent a dark underbelly in this country of people who are not respecting our troops, are not giving them the resources and the respect that they deserve. So therefore, because they're not giving the respect that they deserve, apparently they're supposed to leave. I, I think one of the ways we should understand this is if I was, for instance, to, to go to your house and start belittling everything or many things that I saw, you would look at me and say, how dare you come into my house and belittle what you see? You might as well leave. But what if it was my house too? Don't you want to make your house better? Isn't it your responsibility to do so? But for people who do not conceive of it as your house too, because they conceive of the house as white, they're going to say, love it or leave it. You lay out in your piece very carefully how we've been here before. Your colleague in The Atlantic, Adam Serwer, wrote that he wanted to be very clear that America has not been here before. I mean, he stands squarely with the idea that white nationalism has been a governing doctrine for most of our existence as a country, that racist demagogues have occupied the White House before. But he said, we have never seen an American president make a U.S. representative, a refugee, an American citizen, a woman of color, and a religious minority, an object of hate for the political masses in a deliberate attempt to turn the country against his fellow Americans who share any of those traits. I actually do think it's something new, but I think we should also understand that the way racism presents itself, the way racists present themselves, they are essentially changing with the times. What Trump is doing is, as Adam stated, unprecedented. You know, you can simultaneously have a history of white nationalists governing in this country and each generation of white nationalists governing differently, or the way in which white nationalism is showing itself can be unprecedented. Where do you think we are in the continuum of American racism? I try not to actually think of a single continuum. 
but I actually think of a dueling continuum. And so one is the continuum of racial progress, how for certain people, things have progressed. But alongside racial progress has been racist progress in which ideas and policies have become more sophisticated over time. If Obama came to represent for many people racial progress, for many people, they're seeing Trump as the embodiment of racist progress. When the press ran after Republican lawmakers this week, wondering whether what happened would finally be enough to peel some of them away, most of them declined to do so or even to call it racism. They were trying to snatch the blatant remark out of the air and feed it backwards through the dog whistle. I mean, here are Reps Liz Cheney and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy recasting Trump's racism as something else. I want to make absolutely clear that our opposition to our socialist colleagues has absolutely nothing to do with their gender, with their religion, or with their race. It has to do with the content of their policies. I believe that. I believe this is about ideology. This is about socialism versus freedom. Saying that it was about socialism, that felt familiar to me. Read any biography of of Martin Luther King, who, of course, now is widely praised by Republicans, let alone Democrats. This was someone who was constantly classified by the ideological ancestors of current Republicans as communists for his anti-racist activism. Mm -hmm. They're doing the very same thing as the people who they look up to in the 60s at the very moment that they're trying to embrace King. But the same thing happened to abolitionists, right? You know, abolitionists advocating for immediate emancipation were denigrated and viewed as if they were attacking the American way of life and attacking what was essential to America. And of course, that is what also happened during during Black Lives Matter, that these people weren't saying, you know what, we should value life equally. We should value Black life. No, they're going after people. They're attacking people. This is a classic defense that the very people who are engaging in the assaults, presenting themselves as the victims in the way police officers normally do. It strikes me that the storm comes the same week as the Justice Department's announcement that it wouldn't be bringing federal civil rights charges against one of the officers involved in Eric Garner's death in New York City in Staten Island. Uh, Attorney General Barr made the decision the day before the fifth anniversary of his death. I am very angry. I stand here in the spirit of my sister who fought for justice until her dying day for my father. So no, there won't be no calm. No, there won't be no peace, no justice, no peace. You've talked about how focusing on ignorance ignores the root of what racism really is about. Have we been focusing on the wrong news all week? We should recognize and and focus on the actual policies that are being justified by these ideas of go back to your country, mass deportations of people. I'm talking about people who are being mass incarcerated, people who are being killed by the police, 
and that police officer never facing justice. I'm talking about people who are being disenfranchised and demoralized. These are many different forms of policies that are effectively removing people from the body politic of America. I see a very clear line between go back to your country and a police officer choking to death an unarmed black man. So that young man is essentially gone back into the soil. And that is deemed okay, obviously, because the police officer is still on the force. There's a very clear line I see. And so it's not surprising that the same Trump administration has decided to not pursue civil rights charges for Eric Gardner's killer and is also telling four congresswomen of color to go back to their country. You have a book coming out next month called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And you wrote, we know how to be racist. We know how to pretend to be not racist. Now let's know how to be anti-racist. You think it's possible? Without question, I think it's possible because of how I define and how we define racist and anti-racist. Again, it's it's not who a person is. There's no tattoo on a person's head. Well, well maybe <laughs> <Except> some people. <laughs> but people are not born racist. This is not their identity. It is what they are doing. It is what they are saying. And people can say and do things differently. One last question. When all of this happened this past week, in your article in The Atlantic, you talked a little bit about this sort of inner screaming that was going on. And I wondered if you could just describe how you felt as the week went on. Well, as the week went on, which, of course, was a week that in many ways was representative of a lifetime, those constant shouts of, of go back to your country causes some people to ask the question, well, is this my country? And in many ways, it's a scream because, of course, you don't even want to hear that. You don't even want to be asking that question because you don't know anywhere else, right? These types of chants, you know, affect people, cause this internal scream. Well, am I an American? Am I an American? And of course, people end up probably saying, yes, I'm an American. I'm just as American as anyone else. But other people never even have to question whether they're an American. I'm sorry you have to keep explaining that. <laughs> it's okay. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, I wrote that piece, because I wanted to give people a window you know, a way to get into people's minds, how they're taking in the last week, specifically looking at America's history. So we have to be willing to step into other people's shoes and, and to be empathetic. That's essential to being anti-racist. If 
If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. I think there's a there's a piece from Donald Trump where he accuses uh, Ilhan Omar uh, of uh, of hating Americans. Representative Ilhan Omar. She looks down with contempt on the hardworking Americans, saying that Ignorance is pervasive in many parts of this country. And then in your uh, next life, when you interviewed Ilhan Omar, uh, as you said, your, your, your premier guest, your first guest on your, on your podcast, um, she had this to say. And so the only leverage you have is that you are part of this contract and you can be part of the, the negotiations on how many people get resettled in your state. And so it is not that they might not be knowledgeable about this, but they use it as a, as a tool to stir up hate and division. And ignorance really is pervasive, uh, in many parts of, of this country. And as someone who was raised by educators, I, I really like to inform people about about things that they might be ignorant to willingly or unwillingly. How you can parse out one small phrase from a more lengthy answer trying to ex explain a situation in Minnesota gets contorted into this now diatribe against Ilhan Omar and the rest. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a fascinating circumstance. And uh, I have covered Donald Trump for a very long time and seen again and again, how he distorts things and how he, uh, you know, frankly, turns a, a innocent statement uh, into something that sounds very nefarious or very dangerous. Uh, but I've never been in the middle of it myself, so it's kind of a fascinating circumstance this time. Uh, when I heard him say that, uh, it was, I, I knew that it, it had come from our interview, and I was struck by the fact that it was so directly opposite of what she was talking about. Um, she wasn't attacking working class Americans. She wasn't criticizing working class Americans. Her statement, and it's part of a much longer discussion, uh, had to do with politicians who seek to play on the, uh, the complexity and, frankly, the lack of knowledge that all of us have as regards the intricacies of immigration and refugee law uh, seek to play on that in order to create fear uh, and to promote racist and, frankly, xenophobic uh, thinking. And, um, and the interesting thing was that if you listen to what she's saying, 
She is saying that she wants to bring information to the process. She wants to dialogue with people. In the broader context of our interview, it was fascinating because she talked again and again about times where she's approached Republicans on the floor and had good conversations with them, where she's worked with uh, people across lines of partisanship and ideology. And so far from condemning or uh, attacking uh, people she doesn't disagree or she might disagree with, what Ilhan Omar was doing in our conversation was talking about how to break through the spin, how to break through the divisiveness. And for the president to turn it in the way that he did uh, is, a, is, to my mind, a deeply troubling thing. Now, you make comparisons to uh, I did. folks in, yeah, in, in uh, Europe and, and things of that nature. I, I don't necessarily go there. I will go to uh, a long and unfortunate history within the United States of demonization of immigrants, demonization of people of color, uh, and things that have been done. If you go back and you look at some of the rhetoric uh, of the 19-teens and 1920s in this country. And then, if again, if you look at some of what was said in the 1950s and 1960s, you see very similar patterns. And um, I don't think that Ilhan Omar uh, necessarily compares in every way to everyone throughout that history. Um, but I do think that she is, in this case, a victim of uh, something that has been very much a part of the American experience, and it is the the attempt to make the immigrant, the the newcomer to the country, seem to be dangerous, seem to be threatening, simply because that person may disagree with you politically. And that juxtaposition uh, is a really unsettling and troubling one, because what it suggests is something that concerned Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln... Uh, talked a lot about the notion that people who had come recently, uh, in his time, Irish immigrants, German immigrants, uh, once they had come to this country, become a part of this country, he argued that they were part of a of an extended conversation that went back to the founding of the, of the Republic, went back to the Declaration of Independence, and Lincoln went out of his way to say that, that newcomers were no less a part of that conversation, had no less a place in that conversation than the descendants of the founders. It was a very important message. And Trump seems to be openly at war with that notion, openly at war with the idea that someone who uh, maybe came to this country 20 years ago or 30 years ago is somehow less free to criticize the country than, than the rest of us, than those of us who may have deeper roots or more history. Uh, boy, when we get into that game, uh, we really do divide this country in the ugliest and most dangerous ways. Well, I'm going to come back to two things you said. I, I do want to come back to the earlier thing about Mussolini and Hitler, and I understand what you're saying. I want to play in a minute here this, this piece from Trump uh, that ends up in this chant and talk a bit about that. Um, you know, I think, but the difference perhaps now, John, is that we are in a world... Uh, post the civil rights movement, post the, the, the growth of the union movement, post the time of, of when the, uh, we ended segregation, and a new group of, I'm going to call them, um, white nationalists, uh, in part, have taken over the executive branch. 
uh, are running rampant through our system, tearing down things. Every regulation that protects workers and the environment and, and it, it was just being torn asunder. Uh, and the rhetoric is fearsome against people of color and fearsome against immigrants. Uh, and it reaches fever pitch. The thing the difference now, it seems to me, though, is that after that long struggle, these folks are in power. And that, that seems mm-hmm. to me very different than some previous moments in our history when that really wasn't the case completely. Well, look, uh, I, would, I would caution you, again, to go back to some of our history. Um, and I'll talk about two things here. Number one, uh, in 1924, when Robert M. LaFollette ran for president of the United States with support from uh, activists in the NAACP, W.B. Right. Du Bois, and other, uh, when, when LaFollette ran, one of the reasons that he got such traction was because the Ku Klux Klan had become so very dominant within both the Democratic and the Republican parties at their conventions. And this is an important thing to understand. I, I think we, we reflect on our own history sometimes so casually and, and sometimes without a, a lot of perspective that we forget we had times in this country within the last century where the Ku Klux Klan was a major force, not merely marching in the streets of cities, but in our politics, influencing our politics. And again, I would suggest to you that in in the early 1950s, during the height of the Red Scare, um, yes, that was targeting uh, people who were accused of being communists or fellow travelers. But there was also so much targeting of the civil rights movement of labor organizations and that. So there's a long history in this country of people being in power and demonizing immigrants, uh, people of color, those right. who raise political raise political challenges. So that's one part of it, Mark. And the only other part I would would su- would suggest to you is I'm finishing a book now on Henry Wallace, uh, who was Franklin Roosevelt's vice president. And in 1944, 75 years ago, Henry Wallace wrote a I think 43, 44 wrote an essay for the New York Times on what he referred to as American fascism. And it's an interesting thing that at that time, in the midst of World War II, Wallace said that it was important to understand that there could be an American fascism, that it would be very different from a lot of European fascism. It wouldn't take the same form. Um, and yet it would have the, the core concern, and that is a division of people along lines of race and class and, and uh, ethnicity and national origin. And that divisiveness would be used to empower economic elites. And this is Wallace writing in the 1940s. Right. And I really invite you, if you go back and read Henry Wallace's essay from that time, it sounds an awfully lot like now. No, and it does. And, and so I, all I'll tell you is the historical roots are there. No, no, the historical roots are there. And, and I want to play this clip here. You know, one of the things I said to you before we went on the air, and I've said to you numerous times over the years, John, is one of the reasons I love talking with you is because I can sometimes get, mm, and it would get really negative. And say, this is like 1877. And then, John, you bring up <laughs> Henry Wallace and the fight with Lo- No, Lofala. it's like 1924 and so 1944. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I love. That's good. Thank you. Long so, historical <laughs> discussion. Yeah. So, but, but let's take a quick, before we run, let's take a quick listen to... Uh, to Trump at this rally, uh, talk about Ilhan Omar and the chant that comes after this. When you see the four congresswomen, oh, isn't that lovely? <laughs> Representative Ilhan Omar, 
Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. All right, so Father Coughlin, you can leave Muslim Hitler for a minute. <laughs> but okay. what I see here is is a is a dangerous sign. I mean, this is what you're talking about, Wallace's essay. I know that essay you're talking about, and we are we are living in a time of 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 a of a huge divide in this country, uh, and it's driven by this fear, and that fear drives what he just did in that crowd. That's a dangerous. Zone. Yeah, and it. Oh, I think it is. And again, uh, this notion of, of send her back or send him back or send them back is hardly new. Um, and and it's it's one that that we have heard at various times in our history. And we've heard it used in various ways. Sometimes it is used against immigrants. One of the important things to remember is that during the Red Scare, uh, the first Red Scare of 1919, 1920, right. and then the second Red Scare of the 1950s. In each of those cases, there was a massive targeting of immigrants uh, and of immigrant groups that, and the interesting thing was, these were people who had come to America, who had become citizens, who were fully part of the American experiment, uh, and yet were suddenly targeted. Why were they targeted? Because they believed in the full promise of the of the Constitution, their, the First Amendment, their Bill of Rights. They believed they could speak up on issues and speak out and, and disagree with the government or disagree with those in power, that they could organize unions, that they could organize civil rights groups. And, and these immigrants were attacked for their outspokenness, for their, um, their full embrace of the the best promise of the American experiment that we all have a voice in in this discourse, and that's what I think we're seeing now. And I think we have to be we have to be very focused on that. I think we have to be very conscious of it because it is important not to lose sight of what Donald Trump is really, in many ways, trying to do here. He it's a two I think it's a, a two step thing. Number one, it is of course to to demonize to to otherize the immigrant. Uh, even in this case, people who aren't immigrants, people who have deep roots in this country. Remember, Ilhan Omar has been in this country for decades. Um, and the other three members of Congress that he references are born in right. this country. Right. And so it's it, this is first off sort of an assault on immigrants, but then much more deeply an assault on in this case, women of color. And finally, finally, an assault on dissenters, an assault on those who disagree uh, with Donald Trump and even in some cases with their own party. And to my mind, that is that we, we really ought not lose sight of that. We ought not lose sight of that, first off, because it's what's happening in my view, but also because this has deep roots in America, in the American struggle. And we have beaten this before. We have taken this on and we have said, no, that is not, that is not what America is about. And I really think it's very vital that people do so again. And I will remind you that when Joe McCarthy, a Republican, was doing things like this in the early 1950s, it was other Republicans like Margaret Chase Smith right. who stepped up and, and really shut him down or at least challenged him on it. And I would ask you the question, where are those Republicans today? They are needed today. They need to be stepping up in big numbers and saying, 
Donald Trump is wrong. And it was horrifying to me when the House of Representatives voted on condemning Donald Trump. And instead of, uh, you know, taking that opportunity to step up and and do as Margaret Chase Smith had to say no, um, the 98 percent of Republicans in the House voted not to condemn Trump. And that's that's a in many ways, to me, an even more troubling thing than what Trump says. We've just heard clips today, starting with Back Talk, discussing the importance of the news finally calling out Trump's racism without equivocating. The Real News spoke with Henry Giroux about the tactics of fascist rhetoric. Sojourner Truth explained the racial divide between who is allowed to criticize America. On the media dove more deeply into the question of who gets to be considered a full American. And finally, we just heard the real news speaking with John Nichols about the long history of delegitimizing the other in order to stifle dissent and enrich the wealthy. Members this week will hear some additional material on the history of why no one is allowed to say the president is racist on the floor of Congress, which is ridiculous, and the strategy of pitting relatively poor and relatively uneducated or ignorant people, which we can all be on uh, many subjects, uh, pitting those against so-called elitism as a way of preventing class solidarity to maintain massive wealth inequality. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at bestoftheleft.com. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Heather from Texas. I'm going to preach to the choir a little bit now. To anybody who might be on the fence about the whole universal health care, for anyone who just isn't really sure, imagine you're sitting in front of a person who's just completely broken down and crying because they've been diagnosed with a life-changing, most definitely life-threatening, if they don't get treatment, disease. And they don't have health insurance because they couldn't afford it to begin with. And now they're not going to be able to get insurance, definitely. And they've been denied Medicaid for whatever reason. They've been denied Medicaid. And they're just completely broken down and don't know what to do. Because as it stands, if if they don't get treatment, they could be dead within the year. And... This isn't an old person. This isn't someone who's lived their life and is in their 80s or 90s. This is a young person in their 30s or 40s. And they're just letting all this onto you, all this fear and doubt and just complete distraught emotion. And that might seem like, well, yeah, that's maybe just the exception. But I've experienced that. A complete stranger just crying and talking to me for almost an hour because they had no one else to talk to and they were just felt totally alone. I want you to think about that person when you are on the fence about Medicare for All because that's who I think about. And what's worse is that their disease 
could potentially, if not curable, at least treatable, where they could still have a lengthy quality life. But without it, they most certainly will die. That's my inspiration. That's who I hold on to. That's who I hold in my heart. And that's why I feel like we absolutely must fight for Medicare for all or universal health care or health care for all, whatever name it will have. And I'm sorry for ranting. I just feel like it's important to, to state my absolute support for this. And for anyone who's maybe on the fence, I, I really do want you to think of those people who have no options. Anyway, thank you so much. I appreciate all you do. I'll keep listening. Bye. Hey, Jay. First time caller. I'm uh, Sid. I'm a millennial physician out here in the Pacific Northwest. I have so much to say about the uh, healthcare discussions. Um, and I feel like physicians are not really doing a great job stepping up and actually speaking out. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure in our profession to stay silent, um, not really make too many waves because we don't want people to think poorly of us for being politically active. Um, but I think there are some things that are important to say. Um, so one of the things about drug choice that came up in your last episode, insurance companies are already regulating drug choice. Um, insurance companies regularly will tell me what things that can prescribe patients, even when a patient has been on a medication for many, many years, has been tried on a million other meds, um, they've provably been hospitalized if I take them off of the medication, insurance companies will still argue with me and I have to send back tons and tons of paperwork, which I'm not paid to do. Not that I'm complaining. I think physicians are compensated fairly well in this country, um, but that's not the main source of money leaking out of the American healthcare system. That's really insurance companies and executives who are getting all of the money there. Back to money, we have a problem of training, particularly physicians. I can't really speak to nurse practitioners, PAs, RNs. Um, I love my whole healthcare team, but I don't live their lives and with their debt. Most physicians in the United States are coming out with $200,000 plus in debt. I have colleagues who are coming out with $500,000 in debt. Medical residents, so the youngest doctors who have the least amount of experience are working up to and sometimes more than 80 hours per week. Um, and as we know, working that much is not good for you. Um, we lose about a class worth of uh, physicians per year, so a medical school class, around two to 400 people per year to suicide. Physicians are committing suicide at very high rates in this country. Um, Pam Weibel is a physician in Eugene, Oregon, who has a TED Talk on the matter, if anyone's interested. It's very um, indicative, I think, of the strain that the healthcare system is under from the bottom up. Um, so there's a lot of reform that needs to be done. Back again to the drug choice question, I think that there are lots of ways to come up with systems to make exceptions for people who really need it, um, and that's sort of the system we're on right now. So when I have to make an argument for a drug, I wish that that process was a little bit more streamlined or that physicians were being compensated or given time to do that. Um, so that's a whole different ball of wax. And I realize I'm talking really fast. Again, I have a lot to say. It's hard to put it all into a message. Love the work you do. Thank you so much. Appreciate especially your healthcare staff. See ya.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I don't have too much to add to those excellent voicemails we just heard. Just want to drive this point home as as uh, concisely as I can. All of the arguments against Medicare for all are bullshit. We know this, and uh, here here are the major elements of it. Uh, it anyone who recalls um, the phenomenon of death panels, one of my favorites. Do we have death panels? Would we have death panels under Medicare for all? We already have death panels. We have corporate death panels. People who work in corporations get to decide whether people live or die. We already have death panels. Are we limited on drug choice? Yes. As we just heard, we are limited on drug choice. Corporations and people who work at corporations already decide what drugs we are limited to being able to take. And is our healthcare rationed? This is one of the scare uh, tactics about you know, Canada's horrible health care system where people have to wait to get, you know, a knee replacement surgery and their care is rationed. And that's terrible. Our care is already rationed. Corporations and the structure of our system already rations our care in America. The key difference is that ours is rationed by your ability to pay rather than need. And one excellent point that I heard during my research for the recent Medicare for All show, I don't think it made it in the episode, it was, you know, imagine instead of this ethereal sort of vague sense of uh, this disconnected sense of I pay for my insurance, I pay for my health care, so I should be able to get whatever surgery I want whenever I want. Imagine that instead of it happening in perfectly siloed scenarios where it's just you in a room by yourself thinking about when you should be able be allowed to get your surgery instead of that think of actually entering the hospital at the same time as someone who has a much greater need than you someone who needs uh, you know heart surgery and if they don't get it they will die very soon and you know your knee replacement surgery is Something that needs to be done, but you could survive if you needed to wait a month or however long before uh, you, you could be scheduled in. Imagine that you walked into the hospital at the same time as someone who was in need of that kind of surgery. And how would you react? Would you actually say, no, 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 I need to go in front of you because I've paid and the fact that I have paid means that I get to go in front of you no matter your circumstance, no matter how great your need, no matter whether or not I may be putting your life in danger by not allowing you to go in front of me. I think the vast majority of people with any degree of humanity whatsoever would respond to that scenario by saying, oh, no, 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 please, you go first. That's how humans act in real life when Money is not at the core of our decision-making. We had a long, detailed discussion about the the corrosive effects of neoliberal capitalism on our very humanity recently on a, on a bonus episode. And we were talking about basically the same concept, but in terms of airline tickets. 
And people are now being charged an additional amount of money to be seated with their families. So imagine you're a person with very little money, you can barely afford the the lowest level ticket, and you have a small child with you, you're being put in a situation where you're being asked to pay more for the ability to sit with your small child. And so a question was posed on social media, you know, how how should people handle this? Should they just, at, you know, go to the, the uh, you know, flight staff and ask them, hey, could you you know, rearrange some seats. Could you like ask someone to switch so that I could sit with my child? And people were responding to that proposal saying, screw that. I paid extra for my window seat. So if you want to sit with your family, you need to pay extra too. Now, just imagine that scenario with the financial incentives taken away. Of course, people's humanity is going to come forward far more often. And they're going to say, yeah, of course, please. Like, where I sit is not that big of a deal. I'm happy to move to allow you to sit with your family together. This is what financial incentives do to people. This is how we get in our mind that when we pay for something, we deserve it. And our humanity and other people's humanity gets treated second, if at all. Except in the case of healthcare, instead of, you know, it being more convenient or you know, maybe more helpful for a child to be able to sit with their parent, uh, we're talking about decisions of life and death. So that's the sort of thing you should think of the next time you hear the argument about the horrors of rationing care. We already ration care. We just ration it so that people with money can get it and people without don't and often die because of it. Now, of course, I know... Many more people have uh, lots of thoughts on this subject, either stories to tell or arguments to make. If you have anything uh, you want to add, we would love to hear it. The number is always 202-999-3991. And one last quick reminder before I go that your phone can be a powerful force for change. That's because Credo donates $150,000 every month to groups like Friends of the Earth, the ACLU, and Planned Parenthood. So switch to Credo Mobile, the carrier that stands for women's rights, the environment, social justice, and so much more. Learn more at credo.com slash best. That's credo.com slash best. Now, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.